It's our practice here at Auckland EV to uh, keep opening up the Bible and work through that Bible chapter by chapter. Uh, And so we come to weeks like this where you're like, wow, there's some dense stuff here. Um, We want to hear what God has to say. That's why we keep opening up the Bible. We don't want to hear what's going on in some preacher up the front's head. We want to hear what the creator of the universe has to say. And so we open up God's Word. So why don't we now ask God to help us to understand what He has just said to us through His Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that this morning as we think through what You have said to us through this book of Hebrews. We ask that we would see clearly the position we are in before You and that we might come away with a growing appreciation and awe even of what you have done in your Son. Pray this in His name. Amen. How much would you pay to know the future? What would you give to know what would happen in the days or weeks or months or years ahead? How much would you give not only to just know your future, but to actually be able to do something that could change it or or secure it, to make sure that what you saw happened or what you saw didn't happen. We spend so much of our lives worrying about what people think of us, what effect life will have on us, what security we have. We insure our lives against theft, against accident, against sickness, even against death. The future impacts us, doesn't it? What it would be like to know that future. How would it affect what you did each day in the week? What you, what you order your life around, what priorities you have? Well, the thing is, this section in the book of Hebrews answers that question for us. It answers what is happening in the future. Now, at first glance, uh, you'll see the things that it says here it seem a little peripheral, but very quickly they become central. Have a look at the first thing it says about the future. It's in 9.26, and it's this... We can know that time is coming to an end. But now, Hebrews 9.26, he has appeared one time at the end of the ages. Now, in the argument of Hebrews, it's a bit of a side note as we go through, but it becomes very important in a second. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the age that we live in now, the time we live in, is called the end of the ages. Literally, it's the end of eternity. That's that word, ages. The book of Hebrews is challenging us all to consider what time in history we live. This is the end, my friends. It's what it's saying. We're close to the end. The whole New Testament keeps pushing us to realize that the end of all things is just around the corner. Death approaches every single one of us. But, but more than that, God's about to press the stop button. And we live in a time when the end is near. If you knew that this year might be your last, how would you live? What would I change? Who would I speak to? How would I speak differently? What would I do with my time and my resources and my energy? Every year since 525, uh, the year that Dionysius rearranged our calendar system, we have lived in the year of our Lord, A.D., that's what it means. 20, uh, 2016 AD is from the Latin Adno Domni. The time we live in is around the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the year of our Lord Jesus. Dionysius saw that the, the birth of Jesus, the coming of this man, was so large that we still call it living in that year. 
Because Jesus brings in the conclusion of time. That's the first thing Hebrews tells us about the future. The second in this passage is even more personal than that. Chapter 9, 27, it's the next verse and it's on the screen. It is appointed for people to die once and after this face judgment. So many people have different views of what happens after death. Uh, Not many people hold that we won't die. It's pretty commonly held that all of us die, all people generally die. It's one of the problems people have with the resurrection of Jesus. Death is not what's in question, but what happens next often is. And the claim of the Bible is that all of us, no matter what we believe, no matter what you've come here today thinking, whether you you believe in reincarnation or you believe in worm food, that after death that's all we are and that's all that happens, all of us will die once and then we will come before God. That's the claim of the Bible. It's the claim of Jesus. It's the claim of those who claim to know the God who made the universe throughout all of history in the Old Testament that we will come before God to be judged. It is appointed for people to die once and after this, judgment. Now that word judgment, not, not many of us like it. I don't. I hate the idea of judgment. You know, not many kind of wake up each day going, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting judged today. That's, this is a good day, I'm getting judged. You know, now if I was the most beautiful person in the universe, I think I'd like that. Yeah, because I'll be like, yes, you're the most beautiful person in the universe. I'm not, quite obviously. Uh, but, you know, but there's, there's a reality that because we don't like being judged, I think intrinsically each of us recognise that we're not perfect. We hate this idea. Not many of us kind of want to be judged. I think there's something in us that we each know we have something to hide. That's why we don't like the word judgment. Because we're afraid of people pointing out what we know, or sometimes things we don't even know about ourselves. The reason we fear judgment is that intrinsically, I think we know we have something to hide. I remember um, I, was, I was 16. Uh, in my, I was in year nine in, uh, in high school equivalent. And I remember we'd been doing a Gallipoli reenactment at our, at our school where we were reenacting Anzac Day, coming out of the trenches and kind of getting wiped out. Australians, Kiwis, all together. We were doing this reenactment. We were allowed to do it on the back oval at our school. Uh, and one of the guys was allowed to bring in an air rifle. Uh, it was, was kept in the principal's office until the time we were doing this reenactment. Then we were, we were filming it. Uh, they even let us like do little smoke bombs. It was kind of, I don't know why they did this, but they did. Anyway, and we were down on that back oval. They were extending the oval, so there's kind of these big mounds, and we were filming uh, what was going on, running over the trenches in the kind of in the drama studios' clothes. It was like you know we, we were there. Anyway, we finished early, and there was no teacher supervising us, which is kind of weird as well. Um, and at that moment, <laughs> um, at that moment, the guy who brought the air rifle in goes, "Hey, look what I brought!" and pulled out of his pocket some pellets. Uh, now, it was an air rifle, it wasn't a massively powerful gun, and our school was on 70 hectares of kind of bushland. So off we went down the back, and we were just, the four of us, we were just shooting birds, trying to shoot stuff in, in school. Anyway, we came back to the classroom, there was no one in the classroom, and so we were bouncing the air rifle pellets off the table and shooting them into the stuff in the roof. It was a pretty stupid thing to do, but no one got hurt. Um, and, and then we, we took it back to the principal's office, and no one, no one found out. Well, it was this great moment that we kind of got away with it, right? And I was in an exam the next period, a maths exam. I was sitting next to a guy called Johan Lenfer. Johan wanted to come and shoot the air rifle, but we said no to him. Sitting next to Johan, we're in this exam, and the principal, the assistant principal, walks in and goes, I need to speak with Rowan. 
I'm like, yeah, I wasn't, I was like, okay, this is not going to go well. He, he came outside and he said, I heard someone shot the air rifle at the blackboard. Do you know who? And I said to him, I have no idea that was me. Uh, it was me. <laughs> and I confessed at that moment. And I remember standing outside the principal's office with the other three of us who'd shot this air rifle. And I remember thinking, we're in massive trouble right now. I remember that, that feeling of just your gut is dropped, standing, about to go into the principal. Would I be expelled? Would I be suspended? Would they call the police? Would I get a criminal record out of this? All that is possible. And I just remember the weight of standing there thinking, what will happen to me? It was right to fear judgment that day because I had done things that were wrong. Now, I did get suspended for four days. Um, we got in, in trouble. We didn't get a criminal record, but um, the guy I did get a talking to from the police who brought the pellets in. Uh, but what I want to say is, when it comes to God and His judgment, it's an even more serious issue than thinking about being expelled from school or put in prison. We are coming before the creator of all things. And so this judgment that we are to face after death is something that all of us need to deal with. It's a reality about the future that we need to be sure on. The Jews in, in the Old Testament, they were pretty clear on what God's judgment was like because they had this big kind of picture of what God was like with the temple, with the, the tabernacle. And they knew that coming near to God, coming into His presence, approaching the presence of God was a serious issue. See, what God had done when He'd made this nation called Israel, um, He'd said that His presence would dwell amongst them. And he said what they needed to do was to build this kind of tent, this tabernacle, and God would be on the inside and His presence would be dwelling there. Listen, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant had also regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle, it's just a tent, a dwelling place. A tabernacle was set up. And in the first room, which is called the holy place, were lampstands and the table and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. It contained the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which there was a gold jar containing the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above it, overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak of these things in detail right now. I'm pretty thankful he didn't keep going with the full amount that's there in Exodus 20 onwards about how this all works out. But what this is, is a picture. It's a picture of this tabernacle that God had created, made up for his dwelling to be among them. I've got a shot on the screen that kind of shows you an artist's representation of what it looks like. So it's, it's a tent. Right, and they've got these kind of walls that are set up around it. Then inside that area, they've got places where they're offering sacrifices. Why was that? Because as you approach God, you can't come on your own terms. An animal must be sacrificed. You would then come in and the priest could take you into that next tent, which they called the temple. You could go into that next room there, and in there, they would offer sacrifices. But then there was the room that was right on the inside, the Holy of Holies. And it wasn't just because Indiana Jones' Ark of the Covenant was in there and he wanted to get to it. It was because that was where God dwelt. The cherubim that was set on top of this Ark of the Covenant was said to be on the left and right of God, that God was right there. His presence was there. Now, we kind of hear that and we're like, it feels like some cultish kind of religious thing. But no, this is real. People died for not taking God at His word in how serious He was about the way you would treat Him and the way you would um, access Him. This was where God dwelt. There's another shot that gives you a picture of that inner, inner kind of temple area. And you're seeing the kind of the ark in there with the 
cherubim on artist representation. But there you go. It kind of helps you understand. Um, the significance of all this isn't that this is some awesome tent. We should know how to make tents. Or later on, that they would say, this is how the temple should be built, and the temple is really, really important. The temple was important, but not because of how it was built, but because of who was in it. God's presence was there. God, the creator of all things, was with them. That's amazing. It's one thing to go to Buckingham Palace and be like, wow, that's an amazing palace. It's another thing altogether to walk up to the room that the queen's in and think about opening that door, right? God was present. God himself was there. And this is all about access to God. And Israel knew very clearly you can't just waltz up to God. Look at verse 6. With these things set up in this way, the priests entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Day after day, year after year, they would offer sacrifices to God. It wasn't just because God liked the smell of roast beef and goat. It's not like, oh, this is great. Uh, It was representing a reality. To wrong God deserves death. To wrong God deserves death. You wrong God, someone's got to die. The God who gives life, the one who made you and sustains you and allows my heart and yours to keep beating, my lungs to fill up, and the same with yours, You wrong that God, you reject the life he's given, you offend him, then you're rejecting life in itself. This is far more serious than standing outside the principal's office wondering what's going to happen. Or thinking about, you know, the worst thing that can happen here on earth, to stand before the creator and sustainer of all things, who spoke and the universe came into being. And realize that you deserve his judgment. Someone's got to die. That was what was said loud and clear with this whole sacrificial system. The high priest could only go into that Holy of Holies once a year and then offering sacrifices for himself to to bring to God uh, the, the, the offering to say, Lord, we are sinners. This is serious. This is no game of religious ceremony. God's presence is a terrifying thing. I think too often we go, yeah, I want, to be, I want to be close to God. I want to be in the presence of God. And we're like, this is great. <laughs> he is like a lion. You know, there, he's ferocious. He's the God who is in control of all things. And we have wronged him. I keep using this illustration. We've gone past him day after day, prodding him in the face like a lion in a cage. To come before him without a cage, this is serious. The other thing that we see this series is God wants us to worship him on his terms. Did you notice that? He's the God who sets up, this is how you come into right relationship with me. I think so often uh, there are ways that I'd like, I think I'd like to worship God or I hear others say, oh, I'd like to worship God this way or I'd like to do it that way. God doesn't care about the way we would like to treat him. Oh, it sounds offensive, but he... He is God. We don't get to set the terms by which we may approach Him. We deserve to die, and yet He, well, He doesn't kill us straight away. 
the craziness of thinking that we get to set the terms would be like a soldier. Imagine you're a soldier defending your nation. And the enemy comes up to you and says, oh, look, I'd just like to engage on different terms. Can you just drop your guns and uh, we'll just come through with ours? You're like, no, I'm not going to listen to you. We who've rejected God can't come to him and say, I I I want to worship you on my terms. I want to relate to you on my terms. God is God. We come to him on his terms, not ours. And he says it's impossible to come into the presence of him and live unless blood is spilt. Either ours or the bull and goat who died in your place. That was the symbol. That bull died so that we could have our sins forgiven. As I reflect on the seriousness of this whole temple system, I just think I domesticate God. I bring him down. I don't think about his ferocious, ferociousness. I, t- I tame him. I turn my back on the seriousness of, or I turn down the seriousness of my rebellion against him. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell, particularly the Jewish people amongst this audience, some pretty scary news. This sacrificial system that God had set up, animals dying in the place of people that had been going on for all these years, it never worked. It never worked. Look with me, Hebrews 10 verse 1, from the next chapter, it's on the screen. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshippers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshippers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, again, I hear that, and I think, again, we miss the significance of what's going on to the Jewish hearers at this point. Um, The very thing that gave you confidence as a Jew, that this, this goat or bull had been slain in your place so that your sins were forgiven before God, the writer of Hebrews is saying, never worked. Never actually did that thing that you thought it did in dealing with your sin. We'll see next week how it worked and what it had to do with or the week after next, actually. But it never actually worked. I was trying to think of something similar that would help me to kind of explain what it's like for us. Uh, some kind of similar situation. And this is, this is the best I can come up with. Um, imagine that you went to your high school or your university graduation. Okay, You're going along to graduation. With, with your year, you kind of got all your, your family and friends there, and, and you go and you go and hire those academic gowns, you know, the ones and the, and the black hat. I don't know if you had a black hat at your high school, but let's just say university, imagine that. You get the, the, the kind of hat, so you're all dressed up. You've got the special scarf that's got the colors for your degree, and you're all wearing the same color at the same time. And, you know, you're all in this, this gear to be presented to the world as a graduate, as someone who has achieved these things academically. And you're dressed up as, as you should be. And then on the day, you've got all these clothes on. All your family and your classmates are there. And you walk out onto the stage, seeing everyone there. And then, like a dream gone wrong, you realize that your gown, your hat, your scarf that you thought you had on, you never put on and you're naked. 
You're standing in front of the world wearing absolutely nothing. Because the thing that you thought was presenting you to the world to graduate has been just, it was just a dream. And there you are, standing in front of everyone, stark naked, the press, everyone is there. How do you feel? You're like, ah, oh. <laughs> right? Now, my guess is we generally feel embarrassed. But for those who have sinned, it's not embarrassment we'd feel if the sacrificial system was taken away. It's horror, fear, judgment of God. We have nothing between us and God anymore. That feeling of nakedness is nothing compared to what it is like to stand before the God of the universe. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's exactly what happened. Because the blood of bulls and goats never can take away the sin of people. It should have been obvious because they kept having to offer these sacrifices time and time again. never actually changed the consciences of people's hearts. So what was the point of the whole thing? Why, why was this whole sacrificial system in place? Well, last week we saw that the law was there, that Mosaic covenant um, was there to be a shadow of the real thing. That there was a real tabernacle. And God's presence, where he didn't just dwell temporarily, but permanently exists. And all this stuff on earth that was set up in the Old Testament was just a, a copy of the things in heaven. A copy, a shadow, something pointing forward to the real thing. I want to slow down here for a second and help us get this, because it's, I think it's profound. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place, the way into presence with God, to God's presence, had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words... This was a symbol that God was setting up to say there's something better coming. The whole reason that whole Old Testament law existed was as a sign so that we might recognize that we, we can't have access to God. Why did God set it up that way? Look at verse 9. This is a symbol for the present time during which the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshippers' consciences. They are physical regulations and only deal with food and drink and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. The writer of Hebrews is saying that whole Old Testament system is a symbol for us. That they went through that for so long so that we might recognize that we can't walk into God's presence on our own terms. That blood must be spilt and that we need, we need someone to die in our place. There's nothing that we can offer. No bull, no goat that can perfect our consciences. You might come along today thinking, you know, if, if I were to face God on that judgment day, if I were to stand before him, what would I say? We have nothing to offer. No blood of bull or goat can, can, can be there. No, no generous act that we've done can deal with the rebellion that we've had between us and God. Blood must be spilt. No morally upright life is good enough for God. No amount of good works, no amount of Bible knowledge, no amount of, I did my quiet times three times a day. No amount of, we, we sent out demons from you. We healed people in your name. 
I served on teams in church. I came to church regularly. Surely that makes me good enough for you. No. No ritualistic systems like praying to a priest, sitting in a booth, saying certain prayers are kind of going to get us there, burning incense to God, bowing down to little idols made by man or all the different ways that people think they're going to appease the Creator. None of them work because none of us can deal with what we have done between us and God. None of it is effective in dealing with the judgment we deserve. Christians aren't people that say we think we're good people. Not at all. We need to realize that we deserve God's judgment. We should not have access into God's presence. Then we get to verse 11. And the writer of Hebrews says, But. And shows us three ways Jesus is better. Chapter 9, verse 11. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of creation. He entered the most holy place. The first thing that we see here is that this Jesus has come to bring us into God's presence. He is the great high priest, and not in some man-made tent that symbolized, copied what was in the heavens, but Jesus takes us into God's presence in heaven forever. Look at verse 12. He entered the most holy place once for all. Unlike the priest who continually offered sacrifices year by year by year for the people because their sin needed to keep being dealt with, Jesus walked in and went, it is finished. His death in our place was sufficient to cover the sin of the whole world. He did it once. It was sufficient. He doesn't need to die again and again and again. He did it for us on our behalf. He then tells us that Jesus has better blood. Uh, Look at verse 12. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. Remember who this Jesus is. The the argument to Hebrews has said he's the one who was before all things. He's the one through whom God has spoken. He is God the Son. He is the promised king that would come. He is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What is that? The one who promised to be the intermediary between us and God. This one has shed his blood. God himself in the person of his son died. Now at that moment, that gives us a glimpse of the seriousness of our sin. The one through whom all things were created had to die in order for us to right the relationship between us and God. That's a significant cost, isn't it? And he did that for us. He shared his blood. And that blood obtained for us eternal redemption. Not just some idea of the, oh, I'm okay now because I've asked God to forgive me for a bit and then until the next time that I sin. No, no, no. Obtained for us eternity of being right with God, perfect before him. Jesus' blood doesn't just make the people ritualistically clean 
but offers clean consciences, forgiven before God, no longer having to worry about our judgment because in Jesus the price has been paid, God's wrath has been exhausted. King David, who was another Messiah, Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandfather, he experienced so acutely, I think, this desire for God to forgive him. He saw a woman on a roof. Uh, He slept with her. He then realized she was married and had her husband killed so that it would be all fine. And then Nathan the prophet rocks up and goes, I know what you did. God knows what you did. And in that moment of recognizing the adultery that he had gone through, the murder that he had committed, he says this. I've got this on the screen. I just want to read it to you. Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I've sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you were right when you passed sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out my guilt. God, create A clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. David is a man who recognized his sin before God. He didn't blame God, you're too harsh. (laughs) He recognized he was but creation and God was his creator. And from the moment he was born, he was born at war against God because his own heart wanted to put him in God's throne. Wanted to let him rule his life rather than God. Is that not the position we're in when we're born? Don't we love to rule our lives our own way? Yet what he desires has now been offered in Jesus. A clean heart. Our sins washed away. Because the blood of bulls and goats never fully did it. It was God the Son who died in our place, whose blood was better than an all that cleansed us. We have been washed with blood that was red and walked out white. I remember 14 years ago, another situation. I think I was about 22, 21, somewhere around that. Uh, and I was standing outside another principal's office. And it was a very different time. I wasn't worried at all. Uh, I knocked on the door and I just walked straight into this principal's office. As a principal of a really large school, I just walked straight in and went up to the principal and hugged him. Why did I do that? Because the year earlier, I married his daughter. And the year earlier, because I'd married his daughter, because we had a contract, I can then approach him, not with a fear of principles that I had, to be honest, (laughs) for good reasons, but I could approach him as my dad. That is what Jesus has done for us and God. He has allowed us to call him our dad, to walk into his presence, to know that we are forgiven, to have God the Spirit live in our hearts. 
What the writer of Hebrews is saying for us today is look carefully. That Old Testament system was all about you and God. And that you cannot access God but by what Jesus has done. He has secured your forgiveness. Freed you from sin's power that was death. Wiped away our sin. Washed us whiter than the snow. I was thinking, it's not very often we kind of get to enjoy the best of anything, really. In this life, you you can never afford the the best holiday package. Maybe you can, but you always look around, you're like, oh, it'd be great to do that. You you don't really have the best job you can imagine. There's always something better that you could have or do. Friendships, they're not the best friendship that you could have. You think, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a friend that was always faithful? Marriages, children, you name it. Car, whatever. Yet as Christians, in the things that matter the most, we have nothing but the best. In Jesus, we have the best priest who takes us right into God's presence. We have the best sacrifice, the blood of God himself spread for us. We have the best temple. It's God's presence in heaven that we can enjoy the best possible relationship with God. We get to call him our dad. How amazing is that? In a world where we're seeking the best in so many other places, it's on offer right here in Jesus. Given we do know how the future pans out, given we do know that we are living in these last days, and we do know that all of us will die and come before this God who will judge us, how does the truth of what Jesus has done affect you? If this is true, if Jesus really has died in our place like he claimed, like history claimed, and how will that change the way we live this week? Are you ready to meet your maker? I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what your relationship with God is. I don't know how you treated him throughout your life. But if you're anything like me, we've all turned our back on him. The only possible hope you and I have that God the Son has died in our place and that we have trusted in Him. We have put our life in His hands to say, Jesus' blood is enough. Have you done that? Is today a day for you to consider whether that's maybe the best next step? To come and check out the claims of this Jesus seriously as though your life did depend on it. We so desperately run to lawyers all sorts of professionals when sickness comes or people break in or some contract gets broken. But here we can run to God himself who has died in our place and secured a future for us that lasts forever. At least check it out. And if you are in him, how will you use this short moment we have called life? How will the truth of what Jesus has secured for us, that we've been washed clean, that we've been freed to live a life that serves God, that we have a future that lasts forever. How will that affect the way you live today and tomorrow, the words you say? What an absolute joy it is to know that forgiveness, isn't it? To know that we are forgiven before this God. What a privilege it is to use this moment called life so that people might see him, so that others might be encouraged in him so that more might share in the forgiveness he brings. What what does that life look like? What does it look like to put Jesus first? 
Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us next week, as we come to the next chapter in 10, he will unpack for us what that life looks like, how we might draw near to this God. So why don't we pray that this week we'd be so captured by what Jesus has done, so comforted by the truth that our sins are forgiven, that we might live for him in all our life. Let's pray.